Hello and welcome to In That Case. My name is Joel Townsend and this is my podcast about cases which have shaped Australian law and Australian public life. Uh, you can find previous episodes on the website at www.inthatcasepodcast.com and you can also download the podcast on iTunes. You can follow me on Twitter at, at TownsendJoelC and I'm really keen to hear your suggestions for future episodes, uh, to hear comments, suggestions, uh, to take any questions. You'll um, hear in some of the old episodes conversations with people like Rodney Croom about his uh, case, which was part of a challenge to Tasmanian anti-sodomy laws, uh, with Jason Kiowa, who has, through his uh, uh, High Court migration case, shaped the way public decision-making has taken place in Australia for the past 30-odd years. Uh, and with Stephen Kime, who represented Muhammad Hanif uh, back in 2007 uh, in his various pieces of litigation with the Australian government. So really interesting, uh, absorbing and uh, relevant for our contemporary public life cases. And today I'm talking about another important contemporary issue, which is really the question of environmental protest and its place in Australian law. So those of you who follow Australian law will know that last year the High Court struck down Tasmanian legislation which was um, effectively uh, legislation directed at protesters, it was anti-protest legislation and it was struck down by the High Court under uh, Australia's doctrine of freedom of political communication. We have no express free speech right in Australia but we do as a result of having a democratic system of government and electoral uh, system uh, we have an implied freedom of political communication which the courts have found to exist in our constitution and as a result of the Tasmanian legislation impinging on that implied right uh, it was found to be invalid. Now, I'm not going to discuss that case in any depth. If you want to hear a discussion about that, I would suggest you go to Have You Got That Right, which is a podcast of the Caston Centre for Human Rights Law at Monash University. Uh, it's a terrific podcast. You should subscribe anyway. But that particular episode about Brown and Tasmania, which is a very long, very complex judgment, is really interesting and really worth a listen. So the story of... Australian law and the environmental protest movement uh, is a long one and we see following the rise of the environment movement in the 1960s through to the 1970s and 1980s some really important public interest litigation cases like Murphy Oars uh, in the 1970s which was about sand mining on Fraser Island went to the High Court and the Franklin Dam case um, Tasmania and the Commonwealth went to the High Court in the early 1980s. And a lot of that litigation was public litigation about the scope of state and Commonwealth government power. But there have been another set of cases which have been really important in the uh, context of environmental protest. And those have been cases dealing with criminal law matters and also uh, tort claims on behalf of protesters. Protesters claiming that they've been treated negligently by uh, police or assaulted or falsely imprisoned. 
and on that basis protecting their right to protest. And I've spoken to um, Brian Walters QC, who's a, a Melbourne barrister who's done heaps of environmental protest litigation work. And we talked broadly about environmental protest and litigation, but about two cases in particular. Um, a case in which Brian acted for uh, the senator uh, who uh, was before the High Court last year, Senator Bob Brown. Before he was a senator, uh, he was involved in an environmental protest in East Gippsland, in Victoria, in the Gulungook area. And Brian represented him in his magistrate's court proceeding when he was prosecuted uh, for uh, that protest. And then after he'd won, after he'd successfully defended that prosecution in the magistrate's court, represented uh, Bob Brown in the Supreme Court. And the substance of that case, which Brian will talk about, uh, is that uh, the Gulungook is a protected heritage river. And the Heritage Rivers Act in Victoria uh, had the effect of um, protecting certain areas along certain rivers from logging. And a schedule to the Heritage Rivers Act set out a protected area around the Gulungook River. And in order to describe that area, it referred to a map. And you went to, when you went to that map, that map set out that there was a 200 metre buffer zone on each side of the river that had to be protected. And Bob Brown's case, proven at the Magistrates Court, was that logging was occurring within that buffer zone and so was unlawful. And on that basis, he defended his case successfully. However, when the prosecution appealed to the Supreme Court, they pointed to a notation on the map which said, boundary is the natural features zone defined in the forest management plan. And there was a forest ma management plan which had been created for this area. And that forest management plan set out a minimum buffer of 100 metres either side of the river. And so there was a difficult question of statutory interpretation as to whether this notation on the map was uh, sufficient to enliven a power in the bureaucrats who created the uh, forest management plan uh, to narrow that buffer zone to 100 metres or whether the 200 metre buffer zone set out on the map prevailed. And in the end, uh, the court found that though it was a difficult question, the 200 metre buffer zone prevailed and the prosecution failed. And what Brian talks about is how this illustrates how important it is to get down in the weeds, down in the detail of the statutory scheme when you're looking at the rights of protesters, that the rights uh, that are protected in Australian law in terms of environmental process, protest, notwithstanding the um, Brown and Tasmania case in the High Court last year, uh, they're mostly in that detail. They're mostly not in uh, lofty constitutional principle. They're mostly in the nuts and bolts. So that's one case, uh, a criminal prosecution case. And the other case that Brian uh, talked a bit about was a case uh, that was about tort claims. It was a case called White in South Australia about a protest at the Beverly Uranium Mine site in South Australia. Uh, a number of protesters had gone on to the site and uh, they had been purportedly uh, arrested and locked up by police on the basis that they'd trespassed. But um, they'd not been, before being arrested, requested to leave the site. And indeed, 
there was a great deal of factual contest in the case, but it seems as though uh, there was uh, no attempt whatsoever um, to seek to have the protesters leave peacefully in that case. But because they'd never been requested to leave, there weren't trespassers, uh, the arrests were invalid, and as a consequence of that, there was liability on the part of the state of South Australia for assaults and false imprisonment of these protesters. So they're two really interesting cases which illustrate the way in which uh, environmental protest has been protected by uh, the um, exercise of clever criminal defence on the one hand and the pursuit of tort claims protecting a right to freedom from assault and false imprisonment and the like on the other. Uh, and Brian also talks a bit about how he came to love the environment and what in substance motivates him as he over the years has sought to protect those protesters' rights. I was um a keen bushwalker from uh, even before university days, but through uni and then beyond, uh, explored various parts of uh, our wilderness. And in 1980, um, set up a magazine called Wild with two friends, bushwalking, ski touring, canoeing, climbing magazine. Um, so that was a keen interest. And uh, um, I followed um, the Franklin controversy very closely because um, you know, that southwest of Tasmania was somewhere I already loved. And in 1982, immediately after Christmas, I rafted down the Franklin to join the blockade, which was then on. And um, so I was part of that blockade. I'd given some advice at various times. I'd, um, uh, I was already at that stage a barrister. Um, but between being a solicitor and barrister, I actually worked for the Wilderness Society as a volunteer for a couple of months down in Tasmania. So, you know, that was kind of a campaign I was very close to my heart. And um, so then I followed the litigation, which... Um, took place. What happened was that uh, Bob Hawke became Prime Minister in March 1983, promising to save the Franklin, and his government promulgated regulations which effectively outlawed the building of the dam. Those regulations were then challenged in the High Court by Tasmania, and by a four to three majority, the High Court upheld the Commonwealth's position. So that was an important case. I knew a lot of the people who were involved and um, followed it closely. And I was uh, struck by the way the law had been uh, instrumental in saving a, a very important, iconic river that still to this day flows free to the sea. In 1989, uh, the then state Labor government moved to log old growth forest areas in the Brown Mountain, immediately adjacent to the Erinundra National Park, and which really ought to have been included in that national park. And there were extended protests um, 
uh, over a period of months leading to a compromise of sorts. Now in the course of that um, about 300 people were arrested and I acted for them. I wasn't the only lawyer but I was sort of the leader of the team that was acting for them um, and that uh, occupied quite a lot of time down that way. That was Those were the days when if you won a case you didn't get paid by the other side in, in um, criminal cases so that was all entirely pro bono. And, um, but that was a very interesting case and uh, involved a large number of people be, being um, confronted by the legal system. Uh, expert evidence from people like Jeff Mosley and David Bellamy and a number of other forest experts. Um, it, was, it was a great journey to be on. I talked to Brian a little about environmental litigation in Australia generally and about the development of the law around issues like standing during the 70s and 80s. For those who have listened to the Rodney Croom episode, you'll remember that this is one of the doctrines by which courts control the cases which come before them. Uh, this is a doctrine under which only somebody who has a sufficient interest in the subject matter of a piece of litigation can uh, bring a case. Uh, it is not simply a matter of identifying a breach of the law. You need to have a sufficient interest. And in the context of environmental litigation and environmental protest, obviously one of the big questions is what interest do we have in the abstract, in the wilderness, in the environment, putting aside the traditional interest that the law has protected, direct property interests and the like? Very few cases are at least overtly decided on the broader principles which they embody. So the Franklin Dam was not saved in the High Court because it was beautiful. That was not an argument, even though the Wilderness Society, in fact, um, and they briefed Michael Black in that case, who's later the Chief Judge of the Federal Court, um, but and he handed up photographs. And the court received them, but said we're not going to take any notice of them. <laughs> um, so it was saved as a, because the Commonwealth had power to make that law, and that's what the issue was. And that's typical of many environmental cases. They're decided on points of power, points of the exercise of power, um, points of uh, fairness uh, in the exercise of power, whether appropriate matters have been taken into account. There's legislation that covers these things. The legislation is often inadequate, and, but you've got to try and squeeze your case within it. The first cases that the High Court considered in relation to the environment were the Murphy Oars cases, which were about Fraser Island. That was in the mid-70s. That was the first time they ever dealt with an environmental issue as such. Um, and But that... That was important litigation. It was um, 
not ultimately handled all that well by the High Court, although it was a win for the environment, but, but there were a series of cases. Um, and, of course, the ACF was involved in litigation about standing. Now, um, there are extended standing provisions in the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act. So if you're making application under that Act, um, if you're a conservation or environment group, you've almost certainly got standing. But that only applies for that Act. If, if you're challenging, for example, a ministerial decision under the Administrative Decisions Judicial Review Act, um, you have to establish that you're aggrieved in the normal way. Traditionally, uh, you could only have standing, this is simplifying it, you could only have standing if you had a financial interest at stake. And if your interest was public interest, well, the traditional view was that only the Attorney-General could bring a case in the public interest. Of course, the Attorney-General is often very um, politically beholden. And indeed, in the Franklin dispute, there was an incident in which uh, Mervyn Everett, the then Attorney-General, uh, gave his fiat for, for proceeding, uh, challenging the legality of the dam in, in the Tasmanian courts. Uh, um, sorry, this is Lake Pedder, not, not uh, the Franklin, so this is the earlier controversy. He gave his fiat in accordance with traditional principles. Uh, the Premier, Eric Rees, who was not a lawyer, demanded that he withdraw his fiat so that the case would collapse. Mervyn Everett refused to do so. So Eric Rees sacked Mervyn Everett made himself the Attorney-General and withdrew the Fed. Um, so the use of the Attorney-General's Fed, and the, which was the traditional way of dealing with public interest, was exposed as being subject to political whim and not consistent with the rule of law. Um, it's still available, but there are broader and other considerations which both the legislation and the courts consider in relation to this. In terms of representing individual environmental protesters, Brian's represented many over the years, but he talked at some length about this case of White and South Australia, a case about protesters at the Beverly Uranium Mine site, and he talked about this as a particularly significant example in terms of uh, the conduct of police and the use of tort law to protect environmental protest. White and South Australia was a decision in the Supreme Court of South Australia and it, it was a case that went for, um, many, I'm not sure how long, but it was many weeks in the South Australian Supreme Court. Um, there were in the end 10 plaintiffs. They'd all been protesting against the uh, establishment of the uranium mine at Beverley quite a remote location in the South Australian desert. 
and it was uh, there were a number of issues. It was sacred land, um, and uh, it was um, handled without proper environmental safeguards. It was it, it involved pumping water down into the artesian basin to uh, force other water up to get the uh, uranium out. So there were all sorts of environmental problems with what they were doing, quite apart from the fact that it was uranium. Anyway, there was uh, extended protest. And um, on the particular day in question, the protesters had walked onto the mine site. So they crossed the fence, they'd gone onto the mine site. Um, well, they were on the land that was um, allotted to the mine, but they were actually a kilometre or two from any infrastructure. The police had reacted very strongly and they'd brought up what were called the Star Group, which were um, riot police to deal with this. And the protesters were literally a strolling in in the desert um, and then the police first of all drove at them and in some cases hit them with their cars uh, they sprayed them with capsicum spray they were using it like fly spray to try and herd them towards the uh, fence uh, they then were bashing them with batons even as they were trying to escape and get away. This all happened in the year 2000 and the reason the year 2000 is important is that the police hadn't really realised that people were filming this and there was a lot of footage taken of the police conduct including when they got to the fence there was one person filming from outside the fence who never went onto the fence and that was Lucinda White, who's, who the case is named after. And Lou White had been filming. And she's filming and you can see all these people trying to escape. And then you see the camera sort of shake and she's saying, shame, shame, shame. And the camera goes into the dirt and they attacked her when she was outside the premises altogether, threw her onto the ground, rubbed her face in the dirt and um, locked her in the back of a divisional van, sprayed capsicum and spray into the van. Now, um, there are a number of these incidents and they're all pretty serious. Uh, a lot of them captured on camera, some of them weren't, but after all of this, the various protesters were then held in a shipping container for several hours in the desert. Um, the police actually welded the shipping container to put a, put a, um, a metal cage on the outside of it and finally uh, released them without charge because they'd committed no offence. There were various other um, things that were filmed, including severe bashings by police of, of different people. Now, that was a case where the police had acted outrageously uh, they were sued for assault and false imprisonment um, and various other torts. And 
the court ordered a mediation. Now, we were sitting here in Melbourne, which is, which is where the mediation was uh, ordered and agreed to be. We had a young Aboriginal woman who'd never been to Adelaide, let alone Melbourne, who'd just arrived from the Adnyamutna people whose land this was on. She was, she'd been a little girl at the time and sprayed with capsicum spray by the police. She's there, various other people are there, um, having flown in from around the country for this mediation. We get the phone call that South Australia is not going to attend. I said, well, it's a court-ordered mediation, yep, but we've got instructions not to participate. And it had evidently come from the Premier. And uh, so this then uh, came before the um, court following the mediation, and the judge was understandably extremely angry that, that, that uh, no mediation had taken place. Um, our costs were for the, of the mediation were of course ordered to be paid um, and then a member of the media was there and had asked the Deputy Premier who was also the um, Attorney General and also asked the Police Minister why they hadn't attended and they used that question as an occasion to just attack the protesters and say they'd, they'd uh, um, put the lives of police officers at risk, various things like that. Now, false imprisonment's like defamation in that the damage continues until the day of the verdict. So we then relied on these statements to the media and sought exemplary damages, which we got. They tried to blame the protesters and say that the police had no alternative. But um, again and again, they were met by, met by video. I mean, just to give one example, there was footage of a person uh, going down. He'd, he'd in fact had a badly injured knee as a result of being struck by a baton in the knee. And he collapsed on the ground and couldn't move. And the footage, shows a policeman in a distinctive uniform uh, going up to him and just going all around his head and so on um, and finally the person's head turns towards the policeman and then there's a big blast of capsicum sp spray straight into his face this person who can't stand up um, we got that footage from Chubb it wasn't one of the protesters who took that, but the, but the mine security people had been filming it and they got that, that footage. I cross-examined the officer concerned because he was the only one wearing that particular uniform at the day, on the day. I said, you know, that, you've seen that footage, yeah? Uh, and that's clearly you because you're the only one in that uniform, yes? Why did you spray him? Or, or did you spray him? And he said he couldn't remember. He went with the I can't remember defence. Um, and so he was the sort of person who could spray someone in that 
vicious fashion and not even remember it. So it was, it was, um, and, and confronted with the footage, some of these people were in real trouble. I mean, there was one, they'd all been promoted and one, one of them was by this time a superintendent. He'd been a senior constable and he's filmed with two officers holding a person using a baton to uh, hit him with extreme force in the testicles number of times and uh, as he's screaming and people are calling out to stop and all that sort of. so this man who was a of all things a qualified accountant um, was appalling in his evidence about that he he said that um, he uh, he he was trying to hit him in the lower leg <laughs> and and um, you know, two people holding him. There was no basis for hitting him at all, um, etc. So the defence was um, all over the shop, but it never got close to success. As it appeared to me, and I, I, I don't know if this is the case, but as it appeared to me, it was the hope that we would run out of resources and would no longer be able to fund the litigation and would have to throw in our hand. Uh, and they were just hoping that we'd run out of money. We, we were flying lawyers to uh, Adelaide, putting them up um, every night. Um, so they were quite, quite apart from the fact that the lawyers weren't being paid for this unless they won. There was quite a lot of overhead that had to be committed to, especially, and it was just dragged out and dragged out and I think it was, there was a hope that this war of attrition would pay off, which of course it didn't. I asked Brian why he thought there was hostility to environmental protest such as that shown on the part of the South Australian government in the White and South Australia case. I think there's often a cultural divide. There's no appreciation that these people are genuinely committed to making the world a better place. So they're dismissed as rat bags or um, uh, doll bludgers or whatever the term might be. They're not seen for people who are trying to uphold what's important about this country. Um, and it is a real clash between vested interests and those who want to make the world a better place. Um, a lot of these cases that I've been involved in have been cases where Labor governments have, have been um, instrumental. That was the case with the Brown Mountain protests, that was the case with the South Australian litigation. It was Labor governments that were fighting this and trying to uphold their um, environment-destroying projects. I spoke to Brian about Brown and Tasmania 
and also about his representation of Bob Brown when Bob Brown was charged with hindering lawful forest operations around the Gulungook River. I mean, I think the significance of that case is that it, first of all, it deals with forest protest. Um, and what it says is that forest protest is part of the constitutional fabric of Australia. So legislation to limit forest protest is uh, not going to be straightforward from here on. And here in Victoria we've seen a range of different legislation um, brought in to try and deal with this. You know, there, we had forest operation zones where you needed a permit to go into large areas of the forest and then you needed... Um, th then there's all sort of so-called workplace protection laws and so on and so on. Now, um, the, this, uh, these cases um, are cases that in, involve legislation which is often very poorly drafted and I did a case earlier this year which involved a, um, an exclusion zone set up around a forest area. Uh, that, ca that case and a whole lot of cases that were dependent on it were, was dismissed. Um, and it was, a, it was an example of legislation that really should never have been passed and now will be subject to uh, a further constitutional problem uh, if they try and act on it. Often these cases don't come to court because there, there are provisions for on-the-spot fines and many people think that it's worth just paying, paying that rather than all the expense and trouble of going to court. So Bob Brown, of course, uh, has a long history of this. I've acted for him in relation to the Goolungook forests in East Gippsland. And that was a case where he was uh, arrested for hindering lawful forest operations. Uh, it was again a test case and a really important case because about 300 people at that stage had been arrested. Well, his case was the first case to deal with it. Um, and he hadn't hindered anything. He just refused to accept an order by the police to go and stand on a particular bridge. Um, there was no work being done there at the time. But this was in a... Uh, along the Goolungook River, which was a, a heritage river protected under the Heritage Rivers Act. And it was a, an interesting example of taking a bit of time just with the fine detail. So when one looked at the Heritage Rivers Act, there was appended to it a series of maps, and we actually had to get those maps from the Surveyor-General. And the maps protected an area 100 metres either side of the river which could not be logged and any and there was a provision in the act that said any instrument which purports to uh, permit logging within uh, forest protection uh, 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 this exclusion zone shall be void so when we looked at the um, logging plans um, forest management plan and the plan for the coop, the coop plan. 
they both went to within 50 metres of the river. And then there was a question of how that was measured because it was probably in fact less than 50 metres if you, because it was, it was measured up a slope with a chain rather than an aerial photograph or an aerial distance from the river. Now, that uh, case was dismissed on the basis that the forest management plan and the coop plan were void instruments and that the logging operation was not lawful. Um, all of the 300 other cases were dismissed. The logging was stopped for the entire summer. The government appealed to the Supreme Court, lost that appeal, and in the end brought in uh, retrospective legislation. Um, but that was an important win not a permanent win, a lot of these wins are not permanent, but, a, but an important win along the way in terms of the contest about logging, which of course is so destructive to our environment and so pointless. It, it's, it's a subsidised activity, it doesn't create wealth, it takes wealth away from our community. Without going to the Surveyor General's office, without getting that map <clears throat> really examining it closely, looking at the two documents side by side. We couldn't have um, been able to win that case. <clears throat> but we needed to be able to present that. And it was interesting when the um, prosecution called its surveyor in that case, I was able to show him the Surveyor General's maps of the Heritage River area. And I was asked him, have you ever seen this? And he said, no, he'd never looked at it. I asked Brian finally for some reflections on his work in environmental protest over the years. Well, I think um, cases involving environmental protest aren't straightforward. Um, and much will depend on the case itself and the issue itself. Um, environmental protest is only one means of making a point to the wider community. Sometimes it's little more than the simple dignity of standing in solidarity against a project which is wrong. But for a lawyer, it's important to First of all, choose which cases you do because you can't do them all. Um, to uh, be good at lawyering when the, when the time comes to act and to do a thorough and committed job uh, for your clients and for the planet. Thanks so much to Brian Walters for talking to me and thanks for listening to this episode of In That Case. Once again, you can find the podcast at www.inthatcasepodcast.com and it's up on iTunes. Follow me on Twitter at, at TownsendJoelC. Give me your suggestions for future episodes and I look forward to talking to you again on the next episode of In That Case.